Hello, and welcome to an extra special bonus episode of the Play Notes podcast. I am Moira O'Sullivan, and I am here to give you a little more access to some of the historical and cultural background of the Tuna Christmas. Now, if you listened to our last episode about tuna, you may remember me mentioning an incredible talkback discussion that we had at the theater with a professor from Bates College about where this play lives in the queer canon of theater. And I just was so inspired by everything she had to say that I said, let's bring her on and get all the good details. So today I will be speaking with Eden Osucha, who is an associate professor of English at Bates College and has also taught courses in gender and sexuality studies and American studies. Her areas of research expertise include 19th and 20th century American literature and culture, African American studies, legal studies, critical race studies, visual culture, queer studies, and feminist theory. I am so excited to have her on, so let's get to it. So we're going to jump right in because we've been chomping at the bit to discuss this ever since our talk back. I would love if you could give our listeners some historical and cultural context for the time that these plays were written. The first Greater Tuna was in 1981, and then A Tuna Christmas was in 89. So quite a lot was going on. What do you think was really informing the playwrights? My understanding that the play originated, so Greater Tuna originated, even though the performers and the playwrights of these three collaborators had been trying to get a, you know, they were a part of what was a really sort of underground uh, kind of DIY theater scene in Austin at the time. And they were trying to establish a professional theater company. My knowledge of that scene is that that didn't exist in Austin and that they hadn't had a lot of success with their first, with their first play. And they were kind of in between jobs, if you will. And a friend had asked them to come up with a performance for a party. And that's really where Greater Tuna originated was kind of like a private uh, performance for friends and one community of friends that were deeply Texas, but also queer identified. Also deeply Austin, you know, very much felt the sort of sanctuary of this kind of liberal, you know, of, of living in this liberal town where it was safe to be safe to be gay in Texas at the dawn of the Reagan era. So that this is a play with, um, or a performance as it originated um, with, you know, very queer sensibilities for two reasons. One, you know, the cross-gender drag, you know, that is so obviously drag. Like these are men who are not, uh, not trying to, not trying to pass as very feminine um, or sort of realistic in their portraits of the, of the women characters in the play, but are sort of in the sort of outlandish in the performance itself sort of draw attention to the drag. Um, and it's also very campy. And it's yeah. a camp that is informed by sort of a tradition of camp as an aesthetic and style in queer culture, you know, in queer community, in queer everyday life, but um, as well, you know, camp as a kind of signature aesthetic and even a, a political strategy in gay expressive culture in the 20th century. The, the strategy around camp, that's such an interesting... Well, I'll say one more thing about the camp here, but it's also the camp of Texas, you know, where yes. everything's kind of bigger, brighter, brash outside. So it's also kind of a, it's, it's a queer camp, but it's also a camp that is uniquely Texas as if all Texas 
is camp <laughs> and um, or at least the the kind of particular slices of like Texas or regional life that you see in this. So the idea of camp as strategy, before I answer that question, I also want to kind of situate we're at a moment which is really the prehistory of the present in terms of the political investments values like the ideology of, of the political right in the US in the Trump and post-Trump era, you know, has its roots in the convergence of um, Republican Party politics at a national level and, you know, a Christian fundamentalist, uh, the political ascendance of fundamentalist Christianity in the US and the election of, of Ronald Reagan. Their um, first uh, term of the Reagan presidency is the same, you know, 1981 is the same year in which the public health disaster that would become the HIV AIDS epidemic in the United States is, is um, identified with a cluster of cases in Los Angeles of, of a dangerous sort of an infectious disease of unknown origins, right? So as the backdrop for this moment, I want to think about the moral majority, what would become, you know, under Jerry Falwell, the moral majority and kind of Reagan's America and the Reagan right and the AIDS epidemic and the turn, again, at a national level towards an openly and uh, violently sort of homophobic politics in that time. So, but to go back to the question of camp, a strategy, camp oftentimes sort of operates with a sort of an insider knowledge, right? The satire of a character like you know, Bertha, for example, in the Tuna Plays, you know, it might be recognizable to some members of the audience as just an exaggerated portrayal of a, you know, of a recognizable person. And to other members of the audience that the critique of her politics, right? Um, so, there, so there's kind of a, a love and hate going <laughs> on at the same time. What, what do you think of this camp? I don't know if you remember a few years ago, I followed the Met Ball every year. I mm -hmm. like to see the outfits. One of the themes was camp. And historically, like every celebrity that was invited to the Met Gala did not understand what yeah. camp meant. Like just as no- the, As with the Gilded Age. <laughs> as yes. The yeah. But yeah. particularly, I just remember being like, this isn't camp. I also can't sit here and be like, I know exactly what is camp. I know examples and I know that they're- fairly stylized and they're tongue-in-cheek and there's sort of an understanding with the audience and the performers but yeah I guess I guess most people probably could recognize camp but can't say why you know it when you see it camp isn't simply parody right camp right. isn't simply satire like Camp has a bit of like the uncanny in that it's like, you know, defamiliarizes something that's sort of deeply familiar. I think that's that's one aspect mm. of, of camp, you know, that you see here, um, like with Didi, for example, which I love the performance in, in your production is like, you know, this gun toting, but high femme, high hair, like aggressively phallic, but also like deeply, like deeply heterosexual, right? In her, right. Uh, the kind of like woman who desires, you know, because it's a part of her disappointment in her husband. It was not the kind of man that she desires. In fact, and this almost, you get a sense that she'd be a better version of the man she desires than her husband. Which you kind of arrive at because of kind of the exaggerate, like the leaning in and the exaggeration of like her defining traits that you recognize, you know, the real life version of the DD, but also see the real DD in sort of a new way because of, you know, the, the ways in which um, her 
kind of like full articulation of even maybe the things that the real Didi might not say and certainly wouldn't say in public, right? You know, so it's just kind of the realization of almost like the most Didi version of, of Didi, right? So that, so with that character, you know, and we're always aware that this is an instance of drag, of the cross-gender and in your production, cross-racial drag. Um, so we're aware of the artifice, but we're also, the art. it's the artifice of the real. I guess that's what I want to say, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. You know that it's exaggerated. You know that it's not real, but you know the roots of the realism Camp draws attention to the artifice of the real, right? You know, it, there's a difficulty like defining camp. I know when I see it, you know, what is camp? And because it can't be reduced to a single style or a single subculture, a single iteration, it would be easy to cite in like a history of late 20th century gay male culture, like the places you find it, you know, particular discourses or rhetorics or, uh, you know, a sense of humor thing or forms of insult that like, oh, that's camp. But it, and yet it's not confined to uh, particularly prominent or obvious instances, the artifice of the real. And I think of that as a queer strategy because it is a way of finding kind of agency and self-preservation in deeply repressive times. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, so it can be a sort of survival strategy, a way of kind of finding dignity and even, you know, in a way that, that might kind of escape notice and therefore punishment of critiquing the dominant and even insulting, speaking back to power, but also a way of, and this goes to the, I know when I see it, the way of kind of finding community and connection. And I really see that in the tuna plays because especially these first two, which were the most successful and beloved by the mainstream plays, which is very interesting. You know, so 1981, Greater Tuna, 1989, the Tuna Christmas. And Tuna Christmas even has its off-Broadway, I think, debut. Broadway debut. Broadway debut. 90s. 90s, yeah. And by 91, wow. the CDC is recognizing uh, the death toll from HIV AIDS had had passed 100,000 in the United States. And the vast majority of, I think 90% of those deaths were men who had sex with men and IV drug users of uh, both men and women. And so, you know, this is, you know, unlike current pandemic, you know, this is a devastating public health threat that is um, associated with these sort of kind of threatening marginalized others. Right. And right. Is, the stigmatized aspect of it. Yeah. You know, and um, and therefore not a national problem. Right. But, that's their problem. But it's our problem that they have brought to us. Right. That it's the, it's the threat of homosexuality. Right. It's not just the right. stigma, but it's the threat, the danger of homosexuality. Right. And that idea is so sharp in sort of mainstream America, the mainstream American mind that you have, you know, when children who are uh, publicly, I mean, most famous. Ryan White, you know, these so-called innocent AIDS victims, as this is kind of the media discourse of people who were contracted HIV through contaminated blood products, right? So like this famous child, uh, Ryan White, who had hemophilia and, you know, are, you know, barred out from public schools, are kind of scary, threatening figures, precisely because they're sort of the specter of the scary gay man that's pres presumably contaminated their blood behind them, right? You know, so this is an enormously sort of homophobic, frightening time in not just frightening in, in terms of the toll of this disease that uh, Ronald Reagan, I think it wasn't until the last year of his presidency that he even uttered 
this word, right? Because it wasn't, again, it wasn't a threat to what the discourses of AIDS at the time held to be the mainstream. It wasn't a matter of political urgency. The political urgency was sort of policing uh, the homosexuality, expressions of homosexuality in public and policing, kind of regulating sexuality, uh, regulating identity. So against this backdrop, you know, you have self-identified gay men making a play that the performance mechanism like turns on very transparent instances of, you know, one of the most threatening signposts of sexual deviance, which is drag, you know, at that time, and kind of openly, even more so in kind of greater tune, which is pretty dark play, drawing attention to the racism and the um, hypocrisy, the you know, the racism, the hypocrisy, the homophobia of the right wing and like the Reaganites and like skewering that politics, you know, in 81 and even in 1989, where of course, you know, AIDS is not mentioned in Greater Tuna, but there, there's one reference to safe sex as, um, as a kinky new sex practice, right? I might try some of that. Uh, yeah, Dee Dee's telling Bertha yeah experimenting with her husband with safe, with sex. Husband with safe sex right which is again and the joke is uh ostensibly monogamous uh heterosexual married couple who are bringing in a kink you know and that she might bring in a kink practice uh of like safe sex which on the one hand speaks to that she has no idea what safe sex is you know as it is kind of the the invention of you know, LGBT community, um, you know, they invented safe sex to protect, protect themselves, right? It's not, you know, the public policy at the time, right? You know, it's a code for deviance rather than um, a practical response to the epidemic. It's yet another new queer sort of deviant product, like a, a production of, of queer culture that's like a further expression of kind of this essential sexual sort of deviance. The reality of what happens between 1981 and 1989, what's happening in, you know, politically and culturally for LGBT Americans, you know, is not reflect in A Tuna Christmas. And yet my sense of the play, it's really interesting to me that the play is kind of continuing to critique a politics, to critique a set of identifications that has only become more entrenched, more virulent, more dangerous, more politically prominent in the intervening years between 1981 and 1989 through the course of the Reagan presidency and, you know, this backdrop of this terrible epidemic, kind of like the moral panic, the sex panic that is given rise to at every level of of culture and politics. At the same time, you have in terms of uh, national kind of arts and humanities funding, there are bans on sexually explicit, which means really any kind of openly queer performance, visual art. You know, some of the same figures in the Senate and Congress who were um, responsible for the ugliest proposals um, in terms of kind of criminalizing the HIV positive, in terms of, you know, laws of targeting gay men, you know, kind of brought to the Senate floor, kind of conversations about like, and what kind of art, you know, what kind of deviant sick art are government funds being used for, you know, so there was a big scandal over a very prominent retrospective of um, the photographer Robert Mapplethorpe's after he had died of AIDS and pulled from museum. Um, there was uh, four artists, four performance artists who'd received National Endowment of the Arts funding 
three of whom were gay identified, had their funding pulled. So it's it's really interesting that the tuna Christmas is especially interesting because the same strategies that you see in greater tuna, one might expect not be as popular or welcome at the end, in spite of the enormous popularity of the tuna plays by the end of the 1980s, given all the things that changed in the cultural landscape, these performances might not land as well with the mainstream audience, all which is to say might seem, might seem queer. The queerness of greater tuna is it's like hiding in plain sight because it's, it's a, because the play is also so is so deeply West Texas, right? It's written with and there's an intimate and 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 even affectionate sort of familiarity with all of of the people that are also being sort of savagely critiqued through their or their politics are as they're being kind of burlesqued and yet again return you know in, invited to the now george bush white house you know to per- perform this play right which is and so this, fascinating to me i mean my take is that the you know when Cyril and williams are invited to the white house to perform both the of these first two plays they are the bushes are welcoming them as uh, sort of ambassadors for texas culture right like that they are they are embraced as kind of bringing a celebration of Texas to the White House. Do you think that they saw themselves represented as Texans in this world, but where do you think the the queer aspect comes into play with that invite? I think it doesn't. That's what's kind of tricky and really interesting about the play is that they're, I mean, George Bush, is a, the George Bush Sr. Is, is a Yale man, right? You know, that the, he, he's not from Texas. You know, that George and Barbara Bush, they are of Texas. They love Texas. And I think they don't see themselves in tuna. Yeah, because they're they, above that or removed or yeah. more educated or. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, there are rednecks and rubes in this play, right? It, you know, these are the archetypes. It's not just that Tuna is the center of these characters' worlds. Like, it is the world. There isn't, you know, the scale of, like, the local in relation to the national. Like, it is just the local. There is no national. You know, so I think in bringing them to the White House, you know, they're more identified with kind of the the Austin audience, right, in a funny way. The same ways in which kind of Tuna is recognizable to the Austin, like, oh, we know Texas. We are Texans. But that's not you know, um, not our Texas. But, yeah. But that there's a, there's a, but there's a distance. That's not us on stage, but we know those people like that might be my uncle or my neighbor or my mom's high school friends. Um, and I think similarly, you know, the Bush white house and tuna comes to the white house, not as the Bushes Texas, you know, in a direct sense, but in a sort of more mediated sense, like a, it's a, it's a cultural product of Texas, right? It's a, mm-hmm. It speaks to, and, and it's the deep insider knowledge. And even though the politics of the sort of vile politics that are espoused at different points in the play, you know, are identified with Reagan and then his, and his vice president, who is at that time president, I, and this is maybe, you know, campus strategy. I don't think President Bush would recognize himself, recognize his own words and policies and administration's agenda and those of his allies 
like Jerry Falwell, even though politics, even, even as that politics is being um, ventriloquized in the, you know, kind of twangy voices of these characters. And, and so I think it's, you know, it's the pretense of class and cosmopolitanism that is itself then being, and here's the queerness, that I think itself is being critiqued when Sears and Williams are kind of speaking as these characters. So I'd love to wrap up with one more question, um, and it's something connected to some previous discussions we've had a little bit about the perception of this play now versus then. And modern audiences seeing this who did not live through the 80s or 90s, younger audiences, how is it different to see this play produced in 2022 with all of our current culture informing a a newer generation's idea of this? We have some really big concepts, problematic things. It's in the context of satire, but sometimes you're not sure what to do with that. What are your thoughts? I want to go back to kind of the the play's origins as a private performance among friends, right, in a party, like something that was not intended to be for public kind of mainstream and certainly not national audiences. And it originates in the intimate and kind of ephemeral kind of queer cultural space, right, um, that is kind of essential to you know, the, the history of like lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans life in the United States in the, in the 20th century and, you know, in an earlier moment and that serve not um, so much to kind of establish like permanent, you know, here, here's a, here's a play, here's a script that's available and can go on touring production. So not kind of cultural commodities that have permanence and archives and, and public right. platforms like tuna, but more for um, a sort of a world making community building. And so this play kind of comes from that, but then goes into the uh, official culture. It takes off. You know, it's, it's for an intimate community of friends and a queer community. It just hits a nerve. It connects with, you know, certainly for the Austin audience, it connects with sort of a larger set of anxieties, concerns, fears, frustrations about, you know, what I think is very legible as small town, small minded, bigoted. As I said, I think it's the idea of like, quote unquote, like rubes and redneck, small town folk, right? The idea that their politics, their fears, their hatreds, their misinformation would suddenly have national prominence, would suddenly connect with national politics, right? Yes. As happens with the Reagan era, kind of the dawning of this sort of new political alignment of, you know, Republican, like political elites and corporate interests and national, like fundamentalist kind of Christian leaders, right? So, so, you know, I think for the larger Austin audience, there's like a hunger to see a, a making, fun, you know, making fun of these people and making, you know, satirizing their politics, satirizing town and doing so in such a recognizably queer, you know, to the Austin audience's queer way is a, a way of kind of responding to that development and also uh, wrestling with it. You know, so like then it takes off. And so I think it connects with different audiences for different reasons. There's a lot, as we talked about. And the play's enduring popularity then produces, we have this Christmas play. I think that the Christmas play is 
both an updating, right, showing that this critique is still relevant, even more so, but then also what really strikes me with Tuna Christmas especially, compared to greater tuna, that characters, especially Bertha, like that there's a fuller account of kind of the humanity of these characters like that you see um, in addition to the humor, the, the satire and the, like amaze and with uh, Vera and the Christmas lawn, right there. So there's a, a lot of really wonderful humor and you show, you know, how the stakes are so high because they're so low in sort of small town rivalries, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it goes really deep into the, the kind of relationships within the town and how of an event like Christmas sort of brings everything. everything as it uh, does in many places but you also see more of these characters regrets and longings and hopes and yeah. their and the in a sort of wistfulness a number of the characters kind of talk about and you know different elsewheres you see optimism and also you know, the cruelty of optimism in these characters' lives. So even as there's kind of a further indictment of their politics, you know, which has proven over the course of the decade to be so very dangerous and harmful, there's more more of a kind of an, a, an attention to like, the, the humanity of these characters, again, yes, again yeah. that makes them sort of recognizable as people and not just as sound bites or hairstyles, right? And right. so their, their harmful language, their bigotry, their harmful beliefs are reflections of their very human weaknesses and failings. And I think in current political class that the play should be understood as it, uh, this play would not be written now. Right. Um, but just because something wouldn't necessarily be written now, that doesn't mean it can't be performed now. What you've done, for example, with the name of the radio station and with the choice of a cross-racial casting in the performance also draws attention and makes available for critique aspects of the racism in this world, you know, um, and the sort of the normalization of just kind of life under white supremacy that is tuna and that the and that the original the original actors are fully aware of but i think in the in in terms of kind of uh, performance politics in the present it becomes even it becomes more available like that awareness through the choices that you've uh, that you've made um with casting and, and and directing and i i think so for audiences in the present i think it's really important to kind of understand this play in relation to its historical context uh i mean Many, many things have changed in the present. I mean, especially like I think of RuPaul, the, the popularities are like RuPaul's drag uh, race, you know, that like drag is like mainstream popular mass culture. Um, it is not subversive. It is not, like the artifice and the ugly aesthetics and the DIY, like the kind of drag that you see in this play is of a different historical moment. So these are the challenges with the play in the present. I think that some audience might hear ableist and racist speech as harmful speech rather than a critique of harmful speech. And I think that uh, your production is doing a lot of work, including conversations like this, to kind of to kind of attune the audience's ear, to tune the audience's ear to uh, the the critique rather than like an unthinking repetition or production of harmful speech. So right. I think that 
so much about the, the, the performance traditions that inform the play and the cultural politics that the play draws from are historical. And we're at a different historical moment. And I think we can use, we can appreciate this play as a portrait of that earlier historical moment and appreciate the play as kind of hilarious and artful. And, you know, I think for many audience members, it's part of their, it can be a part of their Christmas traditions and consider how it resonates with the present, you know, is if Didi's waving a Trump sign, you know, if Didi was wearing a MAGA hat on stage, which she could, you know, that would be legible. Like she's not so funny, you know, it's hard to take. So it's hard, it would, it's hard for me to imagine a play written now that, um, yeah, like revisiting Tuna at this moment, I think would be like really bleak. you know yeah yeah well and and things that used to seem absurd and like larger than life and exaggerated when it was originally written now are sort of the base reality (laughs) which is yeah wild yeah I mean at a certain you know if if in the 80s there's a certain element of you have to laugh to keep from crying which is a line in the play yeah which is a line in the play that's right like at a certain point you just start crying now. <laughs> yeah. Crying. Yeah. And that's fair. <laughs> yeah. So I, I really think it's a misrecognition to see to even though, you know, there are these resonances, these characters are not avatars of our present. They're maybe they're ghosts of Christmas past, right? And they they anticipate in the like uh ways that might have done better to heed as a nation. They certainly, you know, they anticipate the present, you know, their, their politics are the roots of, you know, the present, but I think a part of the fantasy, which is maybe part of the pleasure of, you know, and the escape that theater can offer, you know, the fantasy is that they never left, you know, that they never got out of tuna, right? If, if only the politics had stayed in tuna and kind of, you know, that the young juvenile delinquent with the heart of gold and the, you know, uh, gay theater director, like they can get out of tuna, but, you know, Bertha, Didi, Vera, Almer, they're not going anywhere and they don't really want to. Well, Thank you so much again for coming on the show. I feel like our audiences are going to love this. And I I hope that this broadens their experience of the show. I know it definitely has even for me, who was in the rehearsal room and has uh, (laughs) spent more time than most people on this show. I'm still learning new things. And that's so exciting. So thank you again. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity. that you are just swimming in ideas and information after that talk. I know that I am. And just a reminder, if you haven't seen A Tuna Christmas, you have until Christmas Eve to do so, so grab those tickets. And if you would like to do some more reading about the topics that we discussed, check out Play Notes, the print version, which is available on Portland Stage's website. And get ready for our next show coming up. We have Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas, a world premiere play in January. So make sure you come back and hear what Nick and I have cooking up for that episode. See you next time.